Tonight is now finally the time for reparations in New York. Almost 200 years after slavery ended here, Black New Yorkers are still feeling its effects. We go inside the state's push to right our past. Then, the step-by-step -step guide helping women everywhere run for elected office. Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. For years, the idea of reparations for slavery was little more than a pipe dream, as reparations were thought to be almost impossible to quantify and even harder to gain political support for. But times have changed. The country's racial awakening following the murder of George Floyd and subsequent Black Lives Matter movement has spurred several state and local governments to begin to study and even enact ways to financially compensate Black Americans for the historic injustice of slavery. New York is now the latest state looking to join the conversation on reparations, and Mayor Adams has signaled his support for the idea. And Albany is considering a bill to create a commission to study and ultimately make recommendations on statewide reparations. And joining me now as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America is State Senator Jabari Brisbane. Now, Senator Brisport represents parts of Brooklyn, including Fort Greene and Bed-Stuy, and is the sponsor of the bill to create a commission to study reparations here in New York State. Senator, welcome to Metro Focus. Thanks for having me, Jenna. So first, I just want to sort of begin with uh, what I mentioned in the intro, and that is why is now the time? Because for the longest time, reparations was sort of like yeah, it's a nice idea, but I don't think people really thought it was a possibility. So what is at least coming to the table or you want to make sure comes to the table in New York? Yeah, well, thank you for asking that because we are way overdue. People have been fighting for reparations since the end of the Civil War for descendants of enslaved Africans. And we are now at a political moment where we have you know, a, a bill that is in uh, the federal government and Congress, which is not moving. And you have states across the nation and localities taking up the mantle and saying, we will do it here um, as we get to a national reparations program. So I know California drafted a commission and they recently released an initial round of recommendations and we're planning to do the same thing in New York. So now one of the things uh, that I also want to clarify here is that to a lot of people, they might say, well, wait a second, New York was a northern state. It fought for the union. Um, so why would New York be included in this reparations conversation? What role did slavery play in New York state? Yeah, well, yes. So to reminder, uh, New York was a slave owning state for most of you know its, its colonial history. And I believe before the uh, it, the independence, uh, the War of Independence, um, it, New York had 
one of the top numbers of slaves maybe outside of Charleston. And New York did not abolish slavery until the 1820s or so. So there was a top slave owning state. And even so, um, you know, states that may not have, you know, have had slaves themselves still benefited from slavery. You know, cotton that was picked by slaves in the South was bought and, and sold um, in, in, in northern states as well. Okay. And then when it comes to reparations, uh, I just want to also get an idea of how specific are we talking about? Um, Because the Black population in America isn't necessarily, at this point, just the descendants of uh, enslaved Africans. However, a lot of the Black population in America has been subject to, let's say, the the outcomes or the subsequent outcomes um, in terms of policy or economics, et cetera, that slavery has left behind? There are two ways this bill and this commission will look at that. One, acknowledging that slavery was an international slave trade. And just as New York institutions uh, benefited from the cotton that was picked by uh, slaves in the American South, New York institutions also benefited from the sugar that was grown by uh, slaves in the Caribbean. It was an international slave trade. So there, there's that. And then there's also acknowledging, yes, the harms that came after slavery. So this commission will not uh, simply stop its investigation of what happened up until the 1820s when New York abolished it, or even 1865 in America. It will examine the harms afterwards, uh, the redlining, the Jim Crow, uh, the loss of property um, for Black Americans in New York, and uh, what other what other institutions you know, continue to benefit from it. So then one of the questions that usually comes up around reparations as a pushback is, how do you determine which people, which individuals uh, would qualify to benefit from these reparations? That's uh, for the commission to you know decide as it's going through its, its, its studies. We're doing a year of research hearings across the state. Um, you know, there were many corporations that, you know, benefited uh, from, from slavery, you know, many banks that might have used slaves as collateral for it. And it is a process to, to determine um, who and, and, and how much and what form. And that's what we're being really intentional about, about doing. You sort of touched on this before, but I just want to ask again to clarify. Um, when it comes to uh, the things that happened after uh, slavery ended, I'm talking about uh, Jim Crow's, redlining, all of those things. Would that all be folded into this study that you're talking about? Yes. It's looking at the uh, slavery, at the institution itself, and the harms uh, afterwards. And also, you know, even acknowledging, you know, many would argue that slavery never ended because of the 13th Amendment, uh, which allows, uh, you know, people to uh, work uh, for free if they are uh, an incarcerated person. And so that will be folded into it as well as examining, you know, how has the penal system um, disproportionately hurt uh, Black Americans, descendants of, of slaves, and um, denied uh, wealth and, and other uh, incentives for, for us. So this is something that, of course, New York is looking at. You mentioned California as well. But from your take, uh, is this going to be something that happens state by state by state? Or do you think there's a possibility that we could see action from the federal level? I think there's a possibility if we continue to lead by the states, you know, that's how we generate momentum for things like this. Uh, I I would love to see, you know, a a national reparations program happen. But in the absence of that, in the the, the intense gridlock 
in Congress and, you know, the failure of Congress to move a reparation study bill, states are going to have to lead the way. And, you know, an avalanche always starts with a few a few snowflakes. So we're going to we're going to push it that way. So when we talk about quantifying the economic impact of slavery, um, of course, that's something that this study you were saying, this commission, excuse me, would study in New York state. But how would at least do you think or perhaps would see this being uh, then divvied up and distributed? Like, are we talking about like, you know, a check like so many Americans got during the pandemic or would this be through like grants or how do you see this money once that sum is determined? How do you see it getting distributed? Uh, that's again for the commission to decide, but I think general sentiment and when I speak with people in this space is that reparations uh, must include a check but not be limited to a check. So, you know, there is needs to be some sort of financial restitution, but also looking into other ways of acknowledging the harm, um, uh, apologizing for it and doing a promise of it never happening again. That might be changes to education curriculums. It may be things in housing uh, or, or other forms. Well, picking up on that apology uh, part, why is it important to formally for the state to formally apologize for the role that it played? You know, there's that saying that, you know, those who do not learn history or ignore history are, are doomed to re repeat it. And, you know, while we have not repeated slavery itself uh, in New York by, you know, ignoring our part in the system, we continue to disenfranchise uh, black Americans, descendants of slaves uh, in, in other ways. And apologizing for it is part of one way of really beginning to undo the harm that slavery caused. Now, when it comes to apologizing, I mean, there's New York State, but then within New York State, there are so many uh, different kinds of businesses and institutions that also benefit everything from, you know, uh, is educational institutions, universities, to, as you mentioned, some of the banks, some of the insurance companies, um, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, Wall Street itself was uh, a slave market at one point. So would you expect or would that be perhaps required for not just the state, but for the individual, uh, like I said, institutions to also make an apology for the fact that they did benefit from this slave trade? I think that's something reasonable to expect that they do, especially those that particularly were, you know, may literally have existed at the time of slavery and and use slaves as collateral, um, you know, in their in their own banking institutions. I think that you know should absolutely be considered to be part of this. And um, and again, you know, this commission will spend a year like doing a research into this and figuring out, you know, maybe it's not just banks, it might be other institutions as well that benefited from slavery and they need to apologize and also determining what the apology, what form it may take. You know, I, I believe there has been one bank that did apologize uh, early in the 2000s for their role, but I believe it was a verbal apology. And, you know, apologies can take many forms. There are verbal apologies, there may be a financial apology too. So these, these are all things that the for the commission to dive into and really dissect. And I'm also wondering because slavery, I mean, not slavery, but reparations has been a very controversial issue. Uh, a lot of people have said, well, wait a second, why should uh, all African-Americans or perhaps black people living in America be able to benefit from this when there were uh, poor white people who actually now researchers are saying 
also were detrimentally harmed by the institution of the slave trade. Um, is that something that will be considered in the study as well? Uh, this study is, uh, specifically limits it to uh, in, uh, descendants of enslaved Africans. Um, so I, I do not think, you know, uh, any individual that was harmed by the slave trade that was that was not from by an enslaved African would be um, covered by by this study. But uh, it, it is, you know, true that, you know, we have a violent history in America and there are many steps that need to be taken forward to, to move beyond that. And, you know, I am uh, Definitely not against in, in the future, um, looking for ways to, you know, help out other people who have, have been harmed by, by violence in the past. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned earlier in our conversation that California was another state that was uh, seriously studying and looking at this and actually did come up with the number of, I believe it was $5 million to every Black resident who qualifies. That were to happen in New York, uh, I guess... Again, um, would that be a number that would even frighten people? Someone who, you know, perhaps lives next door to you could suddenly come into $5 million. That is quite a lot of money. And would this study also include some sort of education on what to do with $5 million? Because that is a lot of money to suddenly come into. Yeah, I, I definitely do think, you know, any any recommendations that come to the legislature from the commission must include ways to ensure that people, um are, are able to use, you know, their their reparations effectively. But in terms of the, the dollar figure, I, I would just, you know, caution anyone against thinking that's that's too much. You know, New York's billionaires enriched themselves by by tens of billions of dollars during the pandemic, um, just by exploiting working class people uh, across New York. And so when we're talking about, you know, repairing the harms, you know, I, I don't know what the dollar figure is gonna be in New York, but five million pales in comparison. Well, uh, very quickly before I let you go, but if you could wave a magic wand, what would you like to see come out of uh, this study? Uh, if I could wave my magic wand, it's a great question. I would love to see a very robust um, proposal that uh, really hits all the points. You know, it analyzes um, the complex intricacies of the international slave trade, who benefited from it, um, and has a, a, a series of proposals that are not limited to a, a simple check for however many dollars, but changes to the educational system, um, changes to you know even things such as street names that may be still um, named after slave owners, um, and also just ways to help out with um, you know basic uh, needs of our community, such as housing and jobs and healthcare. All right. Well, on that note, uh, Senator Jabari Brisport, thank you so much for joining us. And please keep us informed on uh, any updates that might come out of this commission's study. So thank you. Thank you, Jenna. For most of recorded American history, political power has looked a certain way. Portraits of power calling images of men dressed in suits to mind. However, after the 2018 midterm elections, when women accounted for now more than 100 seats in Congress, it was clear that change in representation is underway. But what obstacles did these powerhouse women face getting to office? And for those of you who are interested in running, what should you know before you enter the race? In a new book titled Represent, The Woman's Guide to Running for Office and Changing the World, actor, comedian, writer, June Diane Rayfield gives women a step-by-step -step guide to running. And we're delighted to have her joining us now. June, it's nice to have you here with us. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to preface this by saying it's a marvelous book. And I think infused with great humor, 
while still focusing on very significant issues. And that's a difficult balance to accomplish. So my compliments to you right off the bat. But let me ask you, <laughs> as, as first question, I, I'm always curious, I've I, I written a few books myself, I'm always curious for writers as to why they decide to focus with all the opportunities you have on this project. And you talk in your, your introduction letter that you and Kate do about what got you to it. Give us a quick sense of that. Yeah, I mean, after the 2016 election, I, I was feeling, there's no other way to put it, just devastated and, and humiliated at Hillary's loss. And I, uh, I was considering running for office. I know I'm not the only woman in America who felt this way, but, but Donald Trump's presidency certainly made me feel like, well, well, shoot, maybe I can do this too. <laughs> um, and I did some light Googling and could not find a lot of information on, on what the first steps would be. I think that civic engagement is, is kept away from a lot of us, uh, maybe on purpose. And we, we don't, well, for most women, we don't consider ourselves. And we think the process seems mysterious and overwhelming and often best left to others to do. Uh, so I really set out to write a guidebook to answer those questions that I had. Kate Black was someone I found. Uh, she was the chief of staff at Emily's List at the time, and she had all of the information. And uh, so we really set out to demystify the process, to make it, yes, fun, dare I say, and accessible, um, but also filled with granular, detailed information on how a run for office could look in a very real life. Let me ask you a big picture question, then we'll get to some of the specifics here. But in putting this all together, what, what did you find in terms of the, the barriers, both, both the realities of barriers and maybe more important, the perception that women have of the barriers yeah. for them running for Definitely. office? I mean, I think that there are the very real external barriers that exist, and then there are the internal barriers. And the very real external barriers are, are uh, around money and access to wealth. And having personal wealth or access to wealthy circles certainly makes the process a lot easier. Also, women have a harder time fundraising. Women of color have an even harder time fundraising than white women. And these are just facts and they're real and they're something to really consider. But then there are the internal battles, the feelings around, are we qualified enough? Um, the fears that uh, we're going to be embarrassed, that we're going to be sexualized, humiliated in some way if we take a step into the public arena. And the book does not dismiss those fears or say that there's not a reality to them, but we also offer women, I hope, a lot of ways to combat these internal fears and to address them. And I think ultimately by providing women with a, a checklist and a path and a roadmap, um, that they can really work and that they can really interact with. By the end of it, my hope is they're really armed for this process in a different way. And that they, what they really walk away from the book with is the knowledge that they're not alone in this, that this is not something someone does alone and that they are going to be engaging a lot of people around them to make this happen. 
Why do you think, you mentioned qualifications, and I was struck by a couple of things in the book. One is the, the fact that, uh, that surveys have shown that even, even men who are not qualified think they're qualified. Even those who have not acknowledged they're probably not qualified have said, yeah, but I'm okay. I'm qualified to run for office. And yet so many women who are highly qualified might question that about themselves. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah. Well, I think, honestly, Jack, it's because we live in a sexist culture and yeah. women are not primed as leaders. Um, we we are, are not primed to believe that this is for us. I also think representation matters. And so it's hard to imagine yourself as something when you don't see men much modeling for it. Um, so I think there are a number of reasons why we're internalizing these messages and we're internalizing uh, that the, the patriarchal culture that we, we live in, we are also a part of it and, and it seeps in. So um, I think there, the first step, of course, is to identify that these are messages and just that, that this is not something inherent that's true. Um, and then work to dismantle that. The chapters are, are all, uh, they're all intriguing. Uh, they range from bigger pictures. You talk about fundraising. Where do you go to find the money? Um, you mentioned uh, Emily's List and the role that they can play. But you even focus on, uh, have a sort of a micro focus. You talk about what you should wear. What, what, what should your uniform be? Talk a little bit about that chapter. Well, that was a really difficult chapter to write, and I, I still... I'm still not sure we should have included it. And the reason why is because um, for so many women, beauty standards are, are, are complicated and uh, potentially damaging. And uh, so to write anything that prescribed what to wear for women was very troublesome to me. And yet we got so many questions when we started to, to talk to women who were considering running for office about this very subject. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them just wanted to be told what to wear and so that they could move on with the, the rest of their campaign and focus on the things they actually cared about. So ultimately what we came up with is a real how, choose your own adventure in that chapter. So if you want to go out and buy a whole new wardrobe, yes, we give some suggestions on outfits that might work. But if you want to not spend any money and time on it, we just tell women to go into their closet and put on something that makes them feel really great. Um, and if they don't want to think about it at all, then they should just move along to the <laughs> next chapter because it is a bit of a Bermuda Triangle. Uh, but but turns out something that uh, I think is important to include because because it is a big issue for so many women. Right, and as you said, look, we are, we are a visual society. Um, and, uh, you know, men have, men have advisors to tell them what color tie to wear for a particular event. That's true. But I think for women, you know, men put on a suit and they mm. seem powerful. Mm -hmm. And for women, that, that's, uh, it's a much trickier thing to do. So we don't necessarily have that costume of power to just put on. Uh, for women, there, there's a lot of other factors that come into play. Talk about the checklists, because I, I, again, I talked about in the very beginning this infusion of humor, but, it, but it's powerful humor and, and, it, and it's informative humor. Um, talk about how you've utilized the checklist at the end of each of these chapters and how they build upon each other. Well, so we start by um, really asking women to just say it out loud and to tell someone out loud. And then at the end of that chapter, they get to check a little box. 
I think, you know, going through the book and checking that box and having done the work and research uh, for whatever that chapter is asking you to do empowers women to uh, feel more ready to do this. You know, so many of us, I mean, I'm, I'm one of these women. I like to know uh, that I've done all, all of the work ahead of time before I can go do the thing. But, but yes, there's a checklist. Yes, we thought a lot about it. Yes, I think it's very valuable. And also, my hope is that women don't use this book as a crutch, that if they are on the first chapter and think, you know what, I actually think I'm ready to run now, I hope they close it and just start because I, uh, I don't think we have time to wait. Yeah. You know, I've, I've often believed, let's, let's, let's sort of compliment for you if I might. Um, I, when you look at where we are right now as a government, and, and I teach in, in various colleges and universities, and I've said, look, our founders envisioned this as, as citizen legislators, not professional legislators. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about both sides of the aisle here. We've become much more pro governed by professional legislators almost at every level. And I think one of the great values of your book here, in addition to all the things we mentioned, uh, learning and, and learning in a way that's enjoyable, but it also presents a Bible for people saying, all right, if you want to be a citizen legislator uh, and you happen to be a woman, come and take a look at this and we'll help you get there. Um, that being said, if, if, what's the, the if, if somebody said to you, okay, I, I've, I'm, I'm a woman, I'm really interested, What's the best piece of advice you can give me about running for office? How do you distill it? I think the best piece of advice I would give is to start talking about it. Mm. Um, I, I'm, I, that, that was the first thing Kate said to me in our very first phone call. Um, and I, I thought that was amazing because she, she said it was the first thing women should do even before they, they, they figured out where to run. <laughs> or what the exact requirements were for that specific seat, that they should simply start saying it aloud. Uh, so that's, that's the number one piece of advice. But I totally agree with you that, that the sort of promise of, of our democracy is about we the people. And that means all of us people. And one of the cool things we, cool facts we add in the book is that most women uh, are running because they see a problem that directly affects them and they want to solve it. Uh, not all men, but a, a lot of men are the career advancement. So we should all want uh, people in office and or women, any gender, who are running to solve a problem that they see. And I think that idea of civic engagement, um, we're not really teaching civics anymore. It is so mysterious. And we don't often think that it's something uh, that we should do. And, and I really hope people read the book and walk away from it thinking, oh, I, I am a part of all of this that I see around me, and uh, that could mean a run for office. Well, once again, the book is titled Represent the Woman's Guide to Running for Office and Changing the World. June, thanks so much for spending some time with us. As I mentioned at the beginning, it's just wonderful work that you and Kate did. We appreciate you taking the time. You be well. You too. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning into Metro Focus. Take our award-winning program wherever you go with Metro Focus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play Metro Focus, the podcast. Also available at wliw.org radio and on the NPR One app.